Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Sorry about a few technical difficulties we were having. Neighborhoods in the capital city are among the most segregated in the U.S. A new report from the housing website apartmentlist.com ranks Jackson 13th in residential segregation compared to 99 other metro cities. The study shows African Americans in the Jackson area are the largest minority group living in separate neighborhoods. Chris Salviati is one of the report's authors. So when we talk about residential segregation, what we're essentially saying is that within a given metropolitan area, the minority populations aren't evenly dispersed throughout the metro, but rather are concentrated in specific neighborhoods. Uh, And so the way that we're kind of defining that specifically in this case is that we calculate uh, what we're calling a segregation index. Um, And so why these patterns sort of exist is a bit of a more complicated question. In a lot of cases, it's really rooted in uh, a number of unfortunate historical circumstances. Uh, So for a long time, there was, you know, really uh, officially enforced policies of segregation. Um, in some cases, these were, you know, people think a lot of times that these are sort of just private actions that, that kind of manifest themselves. But in a lot of cases, there were uh, a number of official government policies that were serving to, to enforce um, these patterns. I know Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi mm-hmm. was, uh, I believe, was number 13. What does that look like for the capital city of Mississippi? And then and tell me how that might compare to some other cities in the state. Yeah, so Jackson, uh, as I said, or as you said, uh, has the 13th highest overall level of residential segregation across the uh, 100 largest metros in the nation. Uh, and so the overall index that we calculate there is uh, 0.53. Um, so as I said, the way you interpret that is to say that 53% of the minority population in the Jackson Metro would need to move to a different neighborhood in order for the demographics of each neighborhood to match the demographics of the Metro overall. Uh, within specific minority populations, the black population has the highest segregation index of 0.56. And that's a pattern that we, we see pretty widely uh, across most metros is that the the black segregation index is highest. In terms of comparisons to some of the other areas in Mississippi, Gulfport, that metro has an overall index of 0.37, so quite a bit lower. Uh, Hattiesburg is 0.44. Yeah, uh, Jackson is quite a bit higher than than all of those places on this overall segregation index. I know you mentioned about um, just the black population specifically um, still having, are still being um, most highly segregated minority group. I kind of talk about why that is. Yeah, so I think this gets into some of the kind of historic components that I was referring to earlier. Um, so as I said, throughout the, the first half of the 1900s and well into the second half, there were a number of policies that were 
in many cases, uh, officially sanctioned and enforced by different government entities, which uh, actually, you know, enforce segregation in a in a really clear cut way. Um, so if you go back to you know the the first half of the 1900s, there's a lot of instances where you can look at the deed of a house and it will say explicitly that uh, you can't sell this house to a black person uh, and. You know, meanwhile, redlining later, in later decades, was um, a policy where the uh, Federal Housing Authority, which uh, served to insure insure mortgages across the country, uh, wouldn't insure mortgages in black neighborhoods, and so uh, you, it was impossible to get a conventional mortgage in a black neighborhood. So these aren't patterns that you know emerge naturally in most cases, and as I said, uh, in a lot of instances, these were policies that were targeted specifically at uh, segregating black households. Chris Salviati speaking with MPB's Ashley Norwood. Jackson Zoo leaders and city officials are at odds about a potential new location. We'll hear from both sides next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's an expensive cycle. Insurance, gas, maintenance. Let us help break it by turning that car of yours into public radio. If your car is more work than it's useful, donate it to us. We'll pick it up, get top dollar for it, and use the funds to bring you more of your favorite shows. You might even qualify for a tax deduction. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Leaders in the capital city are resisting an effort to move the Jackson Zoological Park from the location it has called home for nearly 100 years. The zoo is located in West Jackson in a part of town riddled with blight. Like much of the city, the condition of the streets is another possible deterrent for potential visitors. Leaders at the zoo say they'd like to study a new location, a state park near the locations of the Agricultural Museum, Children's Museum, and Museum of Natural Science. But the Office of Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba says moving the Jackson Zoo would decimate its current neighborhood. Today, we're hearing from both sides. First, Beth Poff is director of the Jackson Zoo. She talks about the financial reality the zoo faces. Basically, what the zoo's been facing for many years, not just recently, is a downturn in attendance, a downturn in support, and just a downturn of focus and attention. So the board got together, went through another task force, accepted the recommendation, and now we're getting ready to study a new site, uh, LaFleur's Bluff area, to possibly move the zoo there. But uh, we have a lot of work still to do before we really move. So I always like to add that we're not packing up the uh, moving van tomorrow or anything like that. We we still have a lot of study work to do. Jackson Mayor Shokwayan Tarlamumba says moving the zoo out of West Jackson is, quote, disrespectful to the history of the zoo and the folks in the community in which the zoo currently resides. He and uh, his administration are dead set against the zoo moving. What is the relationship in terms of the finances, the oversight of the zoo? How much control does the city have as opposed to the the zoo board itself? Um, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because um, this, the property itself 
um, Livingston Park and then the property where the zoo is. That is city property. Um, obviously, back in 85, Parks and Rec got out of the zoo business, and a nonprofit took over the operation of the zoo for the city. Um, and since that time, the lease agreement addresses the fact of what happens to the property, like anything that we build on there or renovate or the society raises money for a new exhibit, anything becomes um, fixed assets still remains with the city. However, personal property and the animal collection um, became property of the society over time. Um, I believe there's like five animals in the collection that were still there in 85. So that would revert back to the city. But the rest have either passed on or, you know, things get older after 30. Animals have a shorter lifespan than we do. Um, so it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because right now we own the animal collection. The city owns the property. The zoo, when people talk about, well, who owns the zoo? To me, the zoo is kind of a concept. It's the idea of having a collection of animals to teach children. That, to me, is the simplest thing. So who owns the concept? That's a tough answer. Who owns the property? I can answer that. That would be the city. Who owns animal collection? That would be society. If the zoo were to move to that location uh, by LaFleur's State Park, what is the estimated cost of that, and where would that money come from? Well, we are so in the beginning of first making sure this site's going to work, even though it's everything about it, criteria-wise, it passed as far as close to an interstate, near other resources. I mean, how wonderful for school groups to think about the fact that Children's Museum, Zoo, Natural Science Museum, it's all in the same place. That would really be great. But the property itself, we haven't really gotten to get in there and do a site study. We don't have our business plan done. We don't have our strategic plan done. People always ask me, how much will that cost? I don't know for sure, but we have to assume a 25-acre facility that would be over there would be around $55 million. Now, that's just a guess. It could be less. It could be more. And we would only be doing about half of that as far as fundraising. Where would the rest come from? Um, the rest, We would really look to um, maybe public-private partnerships. Government would pay for some of it, and then donors would pay for the other half of it. Um, then the operational part of it would be changed. It wouldn't just be the city on the hook to help operationally, because zoos always need operational support from their government. But we could perhaps put together a consortium of state, county, other cities to work together. I always like to take an opportunity when I have it to say this is not um, the city versus the zoo or the city and the zoo versus society mm -hmm. or whatever. This is really – it's just coming down to business and math more than anything else. And um, I, I would hope – and this also is part of the recommendation that not only are we looking to have a great zoo in this area for all of Jackson and also for the state. I mean we want to be an economic engine in and of itself is that also we want to work with the city and Parks and Rec about what could happen to the site. Actually, once the zoo does raise the money, relocate, be it LaFleur's or if something else works out, um, we would want to be sure that the West Jackson site, the Livingston Park site, can become really something interactive and dynamic for the community. Jackson Zoo Director Beth Poff. Sophia Omari is Chief of Staff for Jackson Mayor Shokwai Antar Lumumba. Omari says the city and the zoo need more time to explore possible remedies at the current location. The city does not support relocating the Jackson Zoo. Can you tell us why? The primary reason is that we haven't fully evaluated how we can bring the zoo 
up to par as a part of an overall economic redevelopment plan for the area in which it is located. We are also, uh, we recognize that the zoo has been where it is for, wow, for several decades, I would say. And the kind of environment that has developed in that area naturally would be almost impossible to replicate by moving the zoo somewhere else. We know that there are problems. We know that there are things that have to be done to upgrade habitats. We know that there have been problems with some of the infrastructure over at the zoo. But at the same time, uh, we're also aware that historically, it is the kind of zoo that you just don't see anymore. And we think that's of great value. We spoke with representatives of the zoo, and uh, Trey Jones, who's the development director, said that between 1997 and 2000, the society raised about $7 million to save the zoo then because attendance was down. And he said money was spent to expand it, that $7 million. He said attendance went up for one year and has been declining ever since. Also, their amount of um, their donors have dropped off as well because of the declining numbers. Now, the zoo says they are studying this, this location uh, by LaFleur's Lake State Park, that it's just a study at this point. So... Would you like to see a study of the current location? Is that what you're hoping for? Well, I think there's been a study of the current location and that none of the recommendations that were in that study were ever actually implemented, and that's one of our concerns. I I understand that uh, they feel that the only way to keep the zoo viable is by moving it. The issue with that is that we're not sure that everything possible has been done. And part of that, you know, the city takes partial responsibility for that. We know that the money that we've been giving the zoo has been declining, but that's because our revenue has been declining. So it's not like we intentionally decided that we were just going to not support the zoo at the same level that we've been supporting it. We just couldn't. But as we look for ways to increase the city's revenue, as we uh, tackle blight elimination in that area, as we look for other opportunities for economic development in that area, we see the zoo as a part of that overall Dr. Safiya Omari is the chief of staff to Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba in the city of Jackson. Dr. Omari, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Hear this conversation again whenever you want by subscribing to our podcast. Just search for Mississippi Edition in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Coming up in this week's book club, it's An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. That's next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
On the next MPB's Season Pass, we've got baseball, football, and fishing, but not how you'd think. Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame member Coach Phil Denson will be our guest, as well as Vicksburg's Malcolm Butler. He's got a new team, the Tennessee Titans. Hundreds of kids each year learn to fish with DWFP. Wait till you hear the wild way they do it on our next MPB's Season Pass today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. An American marriage is a story of new love torn apart by a lie. Celestial and Roy are separated when Roy is convicted of a crime he didn't commit. Does the relationship survive the ordeal? It's the subject of the new book by Tayari Jones, who joins us in this week's book club. She says her love of books was instilled early in life. I grew up in a house of books. My parents are both academics, but they are social scientists. My mother is an economist, and my father is a political scientist. So they like books with graphs, I guess is what I'll say. They look at books for a place of facts, and I always look to books as a place of imagination. But I do think that I write a lot about Atlanta. It's my my natural habitat, my hometown. It's something that I know, but I feel like two things. You write what you know, and you also write to find out what it is you don't know about what it is you think you know. That sounds very profound. (laughs) But I I think that's what makes it fun. I feel like if I were to write exactly what I know, I would just be reporting as opposed to exploring. When you write a book, given what you've just told me, do you always know where that book is going to go, where the characters are going? I never know. I write to follow them around. I like to have the same feeling of breathless anticipation as a writer that I want you to have as a reader. You've written four previous novels, and this one has really brought you into the spotlight. Is that because Oprah chose it for her book club, or are there other elements? I mean, obviously you're writing, but in terms of publicity, did that sort of launch it into the stratosphere? What I have learned that launching a book into the stratosphere takes so many different things to line up at once. I mean, the Oprah was like adding rocket fuel to the work done by my publisher, Algonquin Books, We were out getting to know bookstore owners, getting to know librarians, putting early copies out in the world. We did that for months before the pub date, and it was like we made a fuse, and Oprah just came along and lit that fuse. Your book is a love story to begin with, and then that love story is interrupted in a crucial, monumental, horrible way. Can you tell us what the book is about without giving a whole lot away? Sure. An American Marriage is a story of a young couple who's only been married 18 months. I mean, they're virtually newlyweds. And he is from a small town in Louisiana, and she's from Atlanta, so she's like a city girl, and he's kind of a country boy, and they have this A romance that feels at once unlikely and inevitable at the same time. And they go down to his his home, his small town where he's from, to visit his parents. And while they're there, he is arrested for a crime he does not commit. And he's given a 12-year sentence. And these people have only been married 18 months. So it's about the ways that they try and the ways they are successful in maintaining their connection and also in the ways that their connection frays. And the big question is, now what? Is he truly a suspect? Is it because he's African-American? I mean, race plays a role in your book in that regard? Yes. um, I think that he is a suspect because he's African-American. I think he's convicted 
I mean, race completely factors in. Like when you take something like bad luck of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and then you compound it with a racial prejudice, and that's how you end up with a disaster. Is this book about their love story or is it a commentary on incarceration, mass incarceration of black men in particular or something else? Well, I think the thing about real life is that you don't get to it doesn't get to be only one thing at a time, right? Their love story is interrupted by his incarceration. Mass incarceration intersects their love story so that it becomes part of their lives. I mean, that's the thing. These social issues, mass incarceration, criminal justice system, private prisons, all of this intercepts the lives, the everyday lives of real people, the love stories of real people. And that's kind of my goal as a writer is to show the way that countless lives are changed by our societal issues. What are the two characters' names? Roy and Celestial. Do we see her struggle with wanting to support him, knowing he's innocent and yet being sort of a widowed bride because of him being locked up? Yes. You know, there's a expression that says people on the outside do time with their loved ones. And that both is and isn't true, right? She's bound to him. But at the same time, her life is beckoning. Her life is moving forward. Her destiny is calling her. And just like any other woman in a marriage, she has to decide how much of her personal resources will be dedicated to nurturing her marriage and how much to following her own dreams and passions. But because he's an innocent man who's incarcerated, these decisions are just so much more fraught for her. What do you hope to leave readers with? You know, I hope that readers come away with this with a greater empathy for people who are imprisoned and their families and to realize that it's not just, quote-unquote, those people, that it's real. These are our fellow Americans. These are citizens. These are members of our community, and we have a responsibility as a culture to do something about these things that are happening right before our eyes. So I hope that people walk away with that, and I hope to get there by speaking to your heart. Tayari Jones is the author of An American Marriage. Tayari, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for Mississippi-based programs all morning long. And join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.